Alright, now what you want to do is just turn one page back. Now if you have a study Bible like Mitch, this is not going to work. This is what my Bible is. You see that? Okay, if you have Mitch's Bible, you're three pages back. Yeah, study Bibles don't work. They fill everything up. Everybody else have this? Alright. I'd like for you to imagine that all you get for 400 years is this. Zero. Zilch. Nada. That this space in our Bibles, these blank pages, represent roughly 400 years of history, of history in Israel, where there was no prophetic voice. There was no word uh, of God. It was silent. Silence. Nothing. There was no... Imagine, 400 years and no word from God. That would be like, this is, for in terms of your Bible, this is all you get. Now the question is, what was the last, what was and when was the last they heard from him? Now turn back a couple more pages, depending upon what Bible you have, to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. This is essentially the last thing they heard from God before these 400 years began. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's the last they heard of God and then there's roughly 400 years of silence. And then that silence was broken in Mark chapter 1. So now turn back to Mark chapter 1. After 400 years of silence, the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, I would like for you to look at me at verse 4. In, Mark, in, in typical Mark fashion, he says it with such great conciseness. John appeared. See, they didn't have Matthew in between their Bibles. They had, the last they heard from God is, I will send my messenger before me. And the next thing they see, the next thing they hear is, John appeared. In fact, Mark in verse 1 says that this is in fact the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is very uncreative. How does he start his gospel? Okay, I'm going to start now. I'm going to start now. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by the beginning of the gospel? The gospel didn't begin here. Where did the gospel begin? Actually, we we know in Genesis chapter three, we have what's called the proto yangelion, the early early indication of the gospel. But but 
I want to submit to you the gospel even started before that. Do you think God was shocked by the fall? Did, did, did God go, wow, didn't see that one coming? I would submit to you that in fact the gospel and God's plan of redemption was in the very heart and mind of God from the foundations of the earth. From before time began. So I don't, I don't think Mark is talking about the beginning of, this is not the beginning of the gospel. The gospel began again in the heart, mind, and character of God from before he created anything. What I think Mark probably means in verse 1 when he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is that this is the, this is the beginning of the Messiah's public ministry. This is his, his appearance. This is his, the beginning of his public, rec, uh, public ministry as Messiah. And that's what his gospel is going to be about. That this is a fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. And the next thing that happens in the redemptive timeline is John appears. And now beginning... Now, by the way, there are a series of genitives here. What does he mean by gospel of God? Or God, well, no, gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What are the options? It could be the gospel about that's about Jesus. It could be the gospel received from Jesus. I take this probably as a subjective genitive. This is the gospel that's about Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a theory. The gospel is not a philosophy. The gospel is not a, kind of a, a, a religious idea. The gospel is first and foremost about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. The gospel is not about being religious. The gospel is not about being sincere. The gospel is about primarily one thing. It's about Jesus Christ. Paul would certainly add, and Him crucified. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in fact, in this one verse, we have the very intent of Mark in his gospel is to show that Jesus, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And in fact, he, he now, he, he says that this beginning marks itself by two very important arrivals. If you were to look on uh, the, the arrival screen at DIA, uh, there would be two arrivals. The first arrival was John. Again, look with me at verse 4. John appeared. And this, in fact, Mark in, uh, says, is, it, is true, in fact, a fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi 3.1. Look with me back at verse 2. As it is written in, as in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared. Now, now as I mentioned last week in introduction, the only two times that Mark is going to quote the Old Testament is right here. It's at the beginning. And it's to demonstrate that this first arrival is in fact a fulfillment of prophecy. Now what's interesting, anybody on your, anybody look on your footnote? What is this quote from? Where is this quote from? Go ahead and look for a minute. The first one, it, verse 2, Jamie is from what? Or verse, yeah. It's from, one's from Malachi, we just read that. What's the other one from? Isaiah 40, 31. But what does he say? Is written in Isaiah. Now, if 
if you hold to the Textus Receptus, it says uh, the prophets. Um, it was not uncommon. We see this throughout Scripture when they would combine uh, the, the New Testament authors would combine prophecies. And what typically they would do is rather than saying, okay, according to the prophecy, according to Isaiah and Malachi and Nahum and Obadiah, they would take what usually the the most prominent uh, the most prominent prophet and say, according to him. Um, and so Isaiah, and, and it's just simply we call a major prophet major simply because of the length uh, of their prophecies. So Mark is just simply saying he, although it's Malachi too, he's simply saying this is according to Isaiah, who was who would have been the more prominent of the two. And and he says, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is a continuation. Understand, our Bible is not the Old Testament over here. It's a blank pages. And then a New Testament here. God's redemptive, there's continuity in God's redemptive plan. Jesus appearing, John appearing, is not something new. In fact, because Mark specifically links his appearing to Malachi and to Isaiah, he demonstrates the continuity that there is between the Older Testament and the Newer Testament. That, that God's redemptive plan was a progressive unfolding. It wasn't plan A and then plan B. And, and Mark clearly connects the two. That, that this is it merely a... Although there's been a break, although there's been 400 years of silence... This is merely, this arrival of John is a merely a continuation of what God had got started in the Old Testament, Older Testament, I guess I should say. And he said that this messenger would come before him and would make his path straight. Now, the, 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 the audience, the original audience would have understood what that meant. Uh, when kings would come into, or when they prepared to come into a city, they would send a, a, a construction crew. A construction crew ahead of them. And this construction crew, historically, this construction crew would, would uh, clear obstructions. Uh, just some of the lists that I read, they would level hills, they would fill ditches, they would clear debris, they would remove obstruction. It'd be like if the president was going to come, you know, we sweep the sidewalk, and if there's potholes, we're going to fill the potholes. We make, they, they make preparation. And this is, in fact, what was prophesied about John, who we know now, John is the fulfillment of that Malachi prophecy. And so John appeared. Who was this John? Anybody know who this John was? Yep, cousin. John the Baptist. See, Baptist, Baptist we go all the way back to the New Testament. Who is this man? Let's 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 get to know John a little bit. Who was it that God called to be the unique forerunner, the unique fulfillment of Malachi three one? This this incredible privilege of going before the Messiah and preparing the way. Um, we're going to look at some verses now, so you're going to need to use markers, whatever. Uh, turn to Luke chapter one. Remember, we are dealing with the synoptic gospels, and we need to reference. We're going to be going back and forth some to let them all comment and get a full, fully orbed picture. 
Luke chapter 1, verse 8. Now while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. By the way, let me just stop here. Just I, I, I was going to go on. but I, All these accounts of people seeing Jesus and angels and talking to him and getting tours and everything, what do we see when people see angels and people in the Bible? Absolute terrifying fear. Okay. I'm sorry. Where was I? Thank you. Verse 13. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you should call his name John. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What a, what a fabulous man this, this John was. Uh, turn back to Matthew 11. Part of the prophecy that we just read in Luke was that he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Matthew 11, verse 11. Jesus is saying to the messengers that John had sent to him, I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then turn over to chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 9. This was, uh, the context is the Mount of Transfiguration. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus, there's a, no, you can't come yet because there's some unfulfilled prophecies. Elijah hasn't come yet. You can't come because this has to happen first. And he answered, verse 11, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. But they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. John was not just a fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi 3.1, but John was, in fact, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah who was to come. They were expecting literal Elijah. That was the prophecy. Elijah was going to come. 
and once again, this prophecy was filled, this, this prophetic prophecy was filled spiritually in the person of John the Baptist. He was the Elijah who was to come. Uh, turn to John chapter 1. Now John is not technically not part of the Synoptic Gospels. But as I was studying this week, I was, I was, I was surprised, quite frankly, there, how much John is spoken of in the Gospels. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now listen, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Part of his role as a forerunner to prepare the way of the Lord was not just to pave the streets, so to speak, but in fact he himself came as a witness to witness about the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. One last one, Matthew chapter, we'll go back to Matthew chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, evil Herod, heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. I knew it. He's been raised from the dead. I knew I shouldn't have killed him. That's my insertion. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him, in Jesus. He thought Jesus was John reincarnated. For Herod, it's... now, Now... Mark or Matthew's going to explain to us why Herod said that. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, "It is not lawful for you to have her." And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that that, that, it would have been a seductive, lustful, drunken party. When she danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised her with an oath to give her whatever she might ask, prompted by her mother, that evil woman, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother in the presence of his drunken party. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Oh, that we had more John the Baptist in the United States of America these days. Verse 4. Because he was saying to Herod, it's not lawful. It's unlawful what you're doing. We've lost our prophetic voice as a church. We've become mindlessly compliant. I know what now, and and I ask myself, why don't we hear more John the Baptist? What you're doing is unlawful because what happened to John? 
See, they've got the guns. They can put us in jail. I, I, I read a thing. Dan had sent me a, a, this. This it was boy. It was hard. It was hard for me to listen to this testimony. This man in Iran who'd been in prison like ten years or so. Time after time, they offered to release him if he would merely recant. Just do what the government. Just say what the government wants you to say. Just fall in line with what the government wants you to do. And they will we'll release you. It's not going to do it. I won't do it. The kid stayed in prison. This was the man that God sent, that God chose to come before Jesus. This, this, this was not, and Jesus wasn't either, this was not some Mahatma Gandhi that was, you know, wandering the countryside this was a man who, who, if we, we, we just, if you want to do a fabulous character study, just do a character study on John the Baptist when he starts calling people brood of vipers. This is the man that God chose to come and to prepare the way, and not just prepare the way, but just to, to get, be a witness to the light. And, in, and while he was doing that, he was a prophetic voice in his culture. And he said to Herod, the most powerful man on earth, arguably, Sir, what you are doing is unlawful. This was the man. What was his ministry? Go back to Mark, if you would. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, some of your translations may say John the Baptist. It, it's not, it does not say John came baptizing, but it says John the Baptist. And there's a technical reason for this, but it could go either way. It could be either John the Baptist or John... The, the, the participle... Now, we know that baptizing is a participle. How do we know that? Class? I-N-G. In our English translations, almost always... We know where the participles are by ing. Participles are not the main ideas. They modify the main ideas. So, what does baptizing modify? John appeared. Okay. John came. John appeared. He was baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is tightly packed. A lot of this we already dealt with in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. This baptism of repentance is a baptism representing repentance. It was, it was, it was, it, it was a baptism that was reflective of their repentance. They, in other words, they had already repented and they were baptized as a result of their repentance. In fact, it says they were coming, verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were coming out to him and were being baptized by him in the river, in, in the river, in the river Jordan, confessing, what is that? Are simple, which modifies them coming. They were coming in, confessing. They were being baptized because they were confessing. In other words, the confession is what resulted in forgiveness, not their baptism. The baptism was reflective of their repentance and their confession of their sin, or confession of Christ, and then their uh, their forgiveness. In fact, we know this. You don't have to turn there. Turn here, but in Luke chapter one again, in this prophecy, 
about uh, Zechariah's prophecy about John, he says this, And you, child, John, will be called prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. And here's what, here's what, if we read in Mark, what Mark describes is the prophecy gives us a description of what he was actually doing. To give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. To give knowledge of salvation to His people. This was His ministry. In fact, in verses... By, by the way, why, why do you think people... Why, why do you think they received Him? They were coming from all over. When I says all, that means from all over. Why do you think they were so excited about John the John the Baptist? Anybody? Thank you. They hadn't heard for they hadn't seen a prophet in over four hundred years. And John appeared. And John is preaching and he is preparing the way. And he is he is confronting his culture. He's calling people broods of vipers. And these people I think recognized John for who he really was. In fact, Mark goes on to tell us, verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This is almost verbatim description of the prophet Elijah. What was Elijah's ministry? Wednesday night Bible study people, you should know this. To confront an evil king of his sin, and to confront Israel with their sins. Isn't that interesting? He came in the spirit and power of Elijah to confront Israel with their sin and their need of repentance. He was very, he was very much uh, in line with all of the Old Testament prophets. He was a man out of time, if you will. He, he describes him as, as uh, dressing like a prophet. He, uh, he says he, he, he ate locusts and wild honey. This was, this was a prophet's diet. And after he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. This was, a, this was something even the most lowliest of servants wouldn't do, was not required to do. And he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The arrival of John broke the silence of 400 years, but the second arrival is even more important. Look with me again at verse 9. In those days, in what days? Well, John the Baptist is doing his ministry. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, You are me, my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Again, this is so classic Mark. What kinds of questions does he not answer here? All, all kinds. What in the world? Why, why is Jesus getting baptized? 
because he just told us all these people from all the region were coming and getting baptized and doing what? Confessing their sins. Is that John, Mark, is that what I'm supposed to take from this? That Jesus had sin that he had to confess? Why, why this baptism? And then this strange, the, 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 the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness and he's being tempted and there's, there's scary animals and what's going on here? Well, Mark 2 is a, I guess, is a kind of forerunner. And I think he gives us these two accounts to demonstrate Jesus' Messiahship, that he is the true Messiah. Let's look at his baptism. He came and he was baptized by John. Now we know in John chapter 1, John said, I, I, I need to be baptized by you. And, and, and the, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 3, gives us some valuable insight. Matthew 3.13 Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized him and John, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come, to, you come to me. And Jesus answered, Let it be now, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The, the, the first reason why he was baptized and to prove his Messiahship was not that he had sin that he needed to confess. So his baptism was unlike any other's. It was, it was a sign of his obedience to the Father. This was an act of obedience in all righteousness to honor the Father. What was Jesus' ultimate mission in coming to the earth? It was to do the will of the Father. And what was the will of the Father? To save the lost. First and foremost, Jesus demonstrated his Messiahship through his obedience to righteousness, to his, his obedience to the Father. What happened next? Verse 10. When He came up out of the water... Now, not only did the meaning of baptism change, but the mode of baptism changed. If, if this was sprinkling, perhaps you could argue pouring, why would, he, why would He need to go down into the water and then come up out of the water? The image here is of immersion it seems to me. And then what happens? As he's coming up out of the water, who saw the heavens open? According to Mark, who saw the heavens open? He, Jesus. There's no indication anybody else did. Not in Mark. We have to go to the other Gospels maybe to get other perspectives on this. But this is something right now that Jesus alone is experiencing. He saw what? He saw the heavens, really, I would, I would translate, split open. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, I think Luke says bodily as a dove. Well, we're not, we're not really sure what happened here or, or what it looked like. But we, we do know that this is, this is symbolism of anointing. This, this, the, the Spirit coming upon when, when you read the Old Testament, uh, you, you, over and over again with David, the Spirit came upon him. In other words, that, that, that was a symbol of anointing. For the Spirit to come upon somebody was a, spirit, was, was a way of describing an, the anointing of the Spirit. In other words, the setting apart of the Spirit, setting that person apart by the Holy Spirit. So not only we see his obedience to the Father, but we see 
that he was the Messiah because of the special anointing of the Spirit and was a, was a model of, of dependence on the Spirit of God. Jesus, in his humanity, during his earthly ministry, depended upon the Holy Spirit's anointing and power in his life. This is what was part of what Paul says in Philippians was part of his emptying. He never ceased being God. He never, he never divested himself of any attributes of deity, but he voluntarily um, relinquished the right to use them independently, instead relying upon the Holy Spirit. I think, in fact, as a model and example for us, Zechariah said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It was the Spirit's anointing of the Son. He was the Messiah because of the special anointing at His baptism that the Spirit came upon Him. And third, verse 11, was the Father's approval of the Son. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am very well pleased. We have valuable insight into the intra-Trinitarian relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The question was, does this mean Jesus is inferior? No, this is what what, what theologians call the economic trinity. That within the, the, the Godhead, three separate unique persons, all 100% God, that within, the tr- within that trinity, within that Godhead, there's, there is submission. And the Son, by the way, when we say the Son of God, it doesn't, it doesn't mean, don't picture your own Son. This was a title. This was a description of the second person of the Godhead. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits and uh, exalts the Son. They're all three equal, but they play they, they, they perform different roles within the Godhead. This is what we call the economic trinity. And in fact, this is exactly what relationship, for instance, in, in, in authority and submission in the church and in our homes is patterned after. This inter-trinitarian economic trinity. Paul says, male and female are created equal. Before God, they are equal. But they have different roles. Just like all three persons of the Godhead are equal, but they have different roles. This is also a great argument against what, what is called modalism. I mean, you know what modalism is? Now, modalism says there's only one God, and he just manifests himself in three different ways from time to time. A key word here, guys, a key word here is that word manifest. They almost always give themselves away when they start talking. Whenever you hear a description of the nature of God and, and, and you hear the word God who manifests himself, ding, 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 modalism. Not the true God. They, they say that there is one God and sometimes he manifests himself as the Father and sometimes he manifests himself as the Son and sometimes he manifests himself as the Spirit. Well, there's a problem with that in this passage because what does he have to do? Okay, he has to say, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then the spirit comes down. And the, well, wait a minute. He has to be the spirit too. So, the, the, David Copperfield's got nothing on him. This is the key passage, guys, that, that just completely obliterates modalism. How can a being be here and there at the same time in the same place? The same, the same being. The same person. Unless, of course, 
There's a trinity. Three separate persons, all three equally God. What about his temptation? This, this weird, the spirit immediately sends him in the wilderness. Why? Does anybody pick up on any illusions? Look with me again at verse 12. The, immediate, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, the desert, where he was in the desert 40 days. Yeah, Israel. How long was Israel in the wilderness? How long did they wander in the wilderness? 40 years. Do you think this is an accident? How did that turn out for Israel? They all died. That generation all died. See, see now he's the Messiah. Now he is going to fulfill, perfectly fulfill obedience and righteousness. And he's in the and he's in the wilderness. He's in the he's in the desert, and and the Spirit sent him there. And, and it is an anti-type of Israel. Only now there is perfect obedience. And what was going on while he was out there? Satan was tempting him. We all we all know from Matthew chapter four what were the three temptations, right? Where were some of the three temptations? What was the first one? Do you remember? Well, he says, take this stone. Make a bread and eat. Yeah, make some sourdough. What, what were we? What were? What are we thinking this time? White, uh, white cheddar. Let, let make this some nice, gooey white cheddar sourdough bread. What's another temptation? One, another one was. That was yeah. Took him up on the top of the temple, probably a vision, and said, "Jump off, and God will protect you. The angels will come." Yeah, I quoted Psalm ninety-one, I think. One more. Yeah, all you gotta do. Don't go to the cross. Don't, don't, don't go through all this suffering. Let me give you, let me give you a shortcut. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Do you think that those are the only three times, the only three ways that he was tempted by Satan in 40 days? I think that there's probably one or two things probably going on here. Those three temptations may be, may be in fact representative of all kinds of types of. Now he did actually say those words. By the way, is every word in the Bible true? Careful, don't you suspect a trick question here? Is everything said in the Bible true? No. We have a lot of things recorded by Satan that he lies. What, what we mean is the Bible truthfully records what he actually said, but what he said is not necessarily true. That was a trick question. I, I think that, I think that, that perhaps this was the culmination of 40. I think there were probably a lot of temptations going on in those 40 days, and these three were, were, were the, his last ditch effort to tempt Jesus to sin. And we read that in another gospel that, that after Jesus answered him each time. It's interesting. Jesus, the Son of God, quotes Scripture in answering him every single time. It says Satan left him for another opportune time. I think that these three temptations were the, was his last ditch effort. But for 40 days, I have no doubt that he was tormented by, by Satan and tempted to sin. And yet, never sinned. And then this thing—what's this? What's this about wild animals and 
The angels were ministering to him. Again, this is his humanity. This was part of his emptying. This was part of his frequent voluntary withholding or exercising of his divine power, his divine prerogatives. And, and, and the Spirit of God, the, through the angels, were protecting him in this very chaotic and dangerous place. And I think that perhaps Mark writing to Christians in Rome under the leadership of Nero probably picked up on Nero was called the beast. He was called a beast for a reason. He was a wild animal. And I think that perhaps couched in, in, these, in these words that God was speaking to his people in Rome, saying that in the midst of wild animals, I'm going to provide for you. Why baptism? As a model, as an example for us. Why this, this temptation? To prove his Messiahship, but also to prove his, to, 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 to demonstrate as Messiah his identification with us. In, in conclusion, turn to Hebrews chapter 2, if you would. I promise this is the last place you have to turn. I should never apologize for asking you to turn your Bibles. I take it back. Matthew chapter 4, or I'm sorry, chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he, may, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. What might the author of Hebrews be thinking when he wrote this? His temptation in the wilderness. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Well, what, do, what do we take away from this? Two things, I think. Number one, John is our exemplar. You know what an exemplar is? It's a model or a pattern. It's something that's to be copied or imitated. John, John is an exemplar of what it means to be a forerunner of Christ. Now, he had a, he had a very unique, one-of-a-kind office. Prophetic office. But I think that he is an exemplar for us. We are called to be forerunners of Christ too. And we are not the light. All, all our job is, is to witness to the light. That's all he's called us to do. So when we look at the ministry of John, while it, while it was so unique in so many different ways, we too, it's, an, it's a copy, it's something that we should imitate in terms of our witness to prepare the way for the Lord, to, to give witness to the light. Number two, Jesus is our exemplar of humanity in right relationship with God, in right relationship with the Father. All that He did as Messiah was a model, a pattern to be copied and to be imitated and how to be right with the Father. Submission to the Father, anointed by the Spirit, beloved sons, adoption as sons, Paul says about us. Adoption as sons. Provision and protection by the Father. All these things Mark brings out as signs, as demonstration that Jesus was the Messiah who has been prophesied long ago. In fact, John himself was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi. 
of the forerunner of Christ. And that is why Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, so often we read these texts and, and we feel so divorced from them. We, we, we feel so separated from them. And in many ways we are. We, we, are, we, are, we are separated by thousands of years of time. We are separated by a vastly different culture. And yet, Father, there are timeless truths that are embedded in your word. And Father, when we read about John the Baptist, it wasn't to, it wasn't to say, oh, wasn't that interesting. It was to say that in many ways our lives should be patterned after John the Baptist. His boldness, his courage, his commitment, his holiness. And Father, when we, when we consider the Son, when we consider our Messiah, well, obviously we will never even become close to being divine. Even he too is a model and example for us of being in right relationship with you, of of dependence on the Spirit, of needing and relying upon the provision and protection of you. And it it is mind-boggling to think that the second person of the Godhead voluntarily humiliated himself and submitted himself and voluntarily relinquished the independent use of his divine power and divine prerogatives as a model and example for us. So, Father, as we continue in this gospel, let us never forget these two very important arrivals, that the beginning of Jesus' public ministry was cloaked in obedience, righteousness, and power. And that is the God we serve. That is our Lord. And it's in his name we pray.